Well, good morning. Thank you so much for inviting me to come back. It's a great privilege to come. I had the opportunity to preach at Grace Church yesterday, which is always um, a wonderful thing. And uh, then to have the opportunity to be with you here this morning is terrific. They've invited me to come in February, and I hope that I will be able to come. And uh, this is just an added bonus for me. I'd like you to turn with me to the book of uh, Song of Solomon. Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. When you get there, go back one chapter. That will bring you to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Because if you think that I'm going to preach from Song of Solomon in here, you don't have a hope of graduating. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. I'm going to take the time to read it. Am I doing that? Okay. My heart beats. Oh, this is fitness week as well, isn't it? Yeah. It's good. I feel fit. All right. Uh, Ecclesiastes 12. I'm reading from the New International Version. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain, when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, when the grinders cease because they're few and those looking through the windows grow dim, when the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades, when men rise up at the sound of birds but all their songs grow faint, when men are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets, when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags himself along and desire is no longer stirred. Then man goes to his eternal home and mourners go about the streets. Remember him before the silver cord is severed or the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring or the wheel broken at the well and the dust returns to the ground it came from and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They are collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. He warned my son of anything in addition to them. Of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. The book of Ecclesiastes, as many of you will know, is essentially one man's journey down a series of dead-end streets as he searches to solve the riddle of life. And when he reaches the 12th chapter, apart from a couple of times before that, he finally penetrates beyond the realm in which he has conducted his search, the realm namely of being under the sun within the time frame of, of life and physical frame, 
he shoots beyond that and brings eternity to bear upon things. And as soon as he does, it changes the perspective on everything. And what I'd like to do this morning is remind you of some essential truths which are relevant not only to you as professing Christian young people, but ought to be a reminder to all of us of the avenues and thoroughfares upon which many of our friends and our neighbors and folks with whom we've studied previously still walk. To remind us forcibly of the challenge that is ours at this point in our history and at this point in the late 20th century as we seek to speak about good news in a world that has increasingly embraced the notion that everything is absolutely meaningless. Uh, many of your friends with whom you studied before you came to college have decided that Sartre uh, uh, was right, that life is a dirty trick. It is a short journey from nothingness to nothingness. And no matter how hard they try to explain their existence or fill in the gaps in their experience, they come up short with great frequency. And so it is that in this 12th chapter of Ecclesiastes, the writer brings everything to a conclusion. In verse 13, he says, here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. You and I both know that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. You know, perhaps if you've studied, that the reformers distinguish between what they call filial fear and servile fear. Servile fear being that cringing fearfulness of what God may do. Filial fear being that great and generous reverence for God on the basis of what he has done. And until men and women, until young people learn to fear God and out of fear for God and in appreciation for his provision, keep his commands, then they are on a dead-end street. Let me walk down with you then uh, some of the uh, points of this chapter. First of all, let me remind you as the writer does, of the brevity of life. That's what verses 1 and 2 are all about. A forcible reminder to us of the fact that life does not go on forever. James uh, makes this clear. He says, your life is like a mist. It appears for a wee while, and then it's gone. Your life is like uh, Southern California morning, the kind of morning we're going to have tomorrow. If USA Today is correct, there will be fog in the morning. It will be gone by about 11. And so if you take off from LAX after that time, you'll be able to see more than you will see if you take off in the early hours. No one thinks about it. It comes and it goes, such is life. The prophet says that our days are faster than a weaver's shuttle. One of the lovely graphic pictures in the Old Testament is of the, of the campfire being built by the shepherd at night. And as you look out in the darkness of the night, as you're falling asleep, you can see these little fires scattered all over the hillside. You fall asleep as it seems for just a moment or two. You wake up and look for the fires and they're gone. The shepherd is gone, the fire is dismantled, and life is moved on. And so the prophets say that is what our life is like. You see, I speak to you as an old man this morning now. Uh, I have uh, reached 40, now I'm 41. My children think I'm 42 and ancient. And I recognize that time goes by. You don't. You're too clever at the moment to realize that time goes by this fast. I don't know if you've ever thought about the fact 
that on average your life is going to last 36,792,000 minutes. You're going to sleep for approximately 12,300,000. You will be eating for another 3 million minutes. That's a lot of food. And some of you have already used up more than your fair quantity at this point. If you're the average kind of person, you will work for another 13 million minutes. That leaves you with about 8 million minutes. Once you deduct time, ladies, for showering, forget that, gentlemen, and for doing the various things that you need to do, you're down to 6,500 minutes, 6.5 million minutes. If you're 18 years of age, you have already used a quarter of your allocation. Therefore, at age 18, you have 5 million spare minutes left if you live three score years and ten. Now, that may seem a lot to you, but it doesn't seem like much to me. Five million minutes left. What am I going to do with them? Would I be so foolish as to walk down these dead-end streets? Would I be so dumb as to live with the notion that my life really will last forever? Would I sing with Garfunkel and his little funny friend, so I'll continue to continue to continue? that my life will never end, to pretend that my life will never end, and that flowers never bend with the rainfall. Life is passing. The years are going to approach when you say, I find no pleasure in them. The sun and the light and the moon are going to grow dark, and the clouds will return after the rain. Verses 1 and 2 are a picture, a reminder to us of the fading of physical and mental powers, the passing of old friends, the ending of familiar customs, and the loss of long-held ambitions. When you're your age, there are still things that you can cherish notions about doing. You can still say, perhaps I will be able to jump that height. Perhaps I will be able to run the 3,000 meters in that time. But when you get to my age, you, those dreams are now gone. It is virtually impossible to fulfill them. And yesterday I was 18. Today, I'm 41. The old uh, gospel hymn says, Life at best is very brief, like the falling of a leaf. Back in Ohio today, the leaves are falling all over the place. And the purpose in confronting his readers with the brevity of youth is the fact of their uh, brevity of life, is the fact of their opportunities, the great opportunities that open to them. Now, if your Bible is open, if you're carrying it, you will see that he moves into some poetic language in verse 3 and following. And he describes here the body of an old man. And uh, he represents it in terms of the figure of a house. Quite an interesting use of imagery. Uh, bear it in mind when you're doing some piece of English literature, you probably, it'll help you along the way. And the man is such, he says in verse 3, that the keepers of the house have begun to tremble. The keepers of the house are a picture of his hands. Now, most of you, if you hold your hands out right now, will be able to look at them. You can focus on them, and you won't have to keep refocusing because they stay where they're supposed to be. But if you remember your grandmother or your grandfather, or uh, maybe not yours, but certainly mine, my grandmother, she used to really freak me out with her hands because... They always moved like this. If I held the Bible with her, it was a major event. Just to, just to quit doing that, you know. And, 
and the harder she held, the worse it got. So it's like, forget it. Just listen to the thing. This is ridiculous. You give her a you give her a cup of tea, you give her a cup of tea, and it's like a major event to see whether it's gonna finally get here or just get everywhere else. She was a lovely lady, bless her, but her keepers of the house were shaking. Now, you think you're so cool, your hands will never shake. They will shake sooner than you realize. Some of them shake already. And, he says, the strong men stoop. The strong men are the legs. Those legs on the soccer field that you look at, we're talking about the ladies' team now? No, uh, uh, they, uh, the, the, what time did you say the game was tomorrow? Uh, the, uh, the, those strong legs, I saw a few of them. I came here Saturday afternoon in time. Uh, I saw number two's legs. I remember them. Uh, you know who you are. I saw number, I saw number sevens. And a few more. Strong legs. They're not always going to be that good. I've got news for you. There's going to come a day when someone will see you coming down the street and they'll say, goodness sake, was that the guy that played number two at the Masters College? Look at him now. So quickly. And the grinders cease because they're few. Huh? Inadequate occlusion. Not enough on the top to meet the few on the bottom. Soup time. Macaroniville. Oh, it's all we can cope with now. Don't give me that chewing stuff. I can't do it. My teeth are gone. And those looking through the windows grow dim. I don't wear my glasses in public. I'm too proud. But they start to go. Your eyes go. You can't see the way you once did. When the doors to the street are closed, suddenly you'd say, pardon? And when the sound of grinding fades, you used to always be able to hear that. And then you said, was I hearing things there? I'm not sure. When insomnia kicks in and men rise up at the sound of birds, but all their songs grow faint. In other words, they're insomniac. They wake up in the night and they thought they heard the sound of birds and then they're not sure if they did. And they just sit there and think. When men are afraid of heights, you're not afraid of heights yet, are you? Some of you are. That's just a thing. You can go for help with that. But by and large, you're not afraid of heights. You sit on your bike, you do these things on your bicycle, you go down hills with no hands, no feet, no teeth, no nothing. I mean, you'll do it all. But as soon as you have three or four children who get on the bicycles and start to do those things, now you start to think like an older person. Suddenly you're afraid for them. You're afraid of the implications of it all. Suddenly your hair turns gray. That's the almond tree blossoming. All of a sudden you've got gray hair. And the grasshopper drags himself along. That's not exactly what you would call uh, a, a beautiful picture of your dad, is it? Hello, grasshopper. How are you doing today? The grasshopper drags himself along the faltering stiff walk. And guess what? Desire no longer is stirred. 
this was an all-male group, I would talk to you about this. That's all I'm going to say. It's, in, it's inconceivable. Look at this. Desire no longer is stirred. Get out of here. It can never happen, believe me. It can never happen. The Word of God says it can. In fact, it says it's going to. You know that you don't know squat about this so far, right? This is remote. This is what you call arm's length theology. So what we're down to is old friends. Old friends. Sit on their park bench like bookends. The newspaper blown through the grass falls on the round toes of the high shoes of the old friends. Old friends. Old men. Winter companions. Lost in their overcoats waiting for the sunshine. Can you imagine us years from today sharing a park bench quietly? How terribly strange to be 70. Old friends. When I get older, losing my hair, many years from now, will you still be sending me a Valentine? Birthday greeting? Bottle of Coke? <laughs> 64. It's not far away. It's tomorrow. Okay, that's the first one. The brevity of life. The brevity of life. Think it out. Nobody wants to think about the brevity of life. People hide away from it. Secondly, the reality of death. Look at it. Then man goes to his eternal home and mourners go about the streets. Verses 6 and 7 provide a vivid reminder of both the beauty and the frailty of life. Remember Him. Remember God. Concentrate on God. Give yourself to God. Be under the control of God before the silver cord is severed or the golden bowl is broken. Life, he pictures, is a beautifully fashioned lamp. It's suspended by a silver chain. It will take only the snapping of a link for it to fall and to be spoiled forever. And some of us know that to great pain. Young folks, this morning we're as breakable as a piece of earthenware. We're as transient as a broken wheel at a well. There will be a last time for every familiar journey. There will be the last time for every routine job. The 2nd of November, 1972, was a Thursday. And I'll never forget it. The previous evening was a Wednesday. Okay? I just mention that every so often. See those two girls that are talking to each other all the time are listening. But the previous evening was a Wednesday... We had played soccer for college, got our, got badly beaten. I went to bed early, decided not to do any kind of study, to lick my wounds and just pull the covers over my life. Was awakened in the morning by somebody beating on my door. Shared a room with a Rhodesian guy called Peter Anderson, who now is in China. He always got up before me. He was a kind of solid Christian type, and I was the other. And uh, there I was in the thing. I remember I shouted out something, you know, encouraging like, clear off, out into the corridor. 
Then behind the knock came the voice. The voice was of the president of the school. So now I'm in deep trouble because I'm unclothed. I'm in my bed. It's five minutes to breakfast and I've got the president of the college standing in the corridor and he wants to have an appointment with me. So he comes in the room, greets me, greets Peter, says to Peter, could you give us a couple of moments on our own, please? Now my mind is racing. Say, so, you know, how could I get thrown out of the college this quickly? I've only been there for two months. I mean, I, get, I figured maybe after longer than that, they could throw me out, but not after two months. Peter leaves, he sits down, takes a chair, turns it around. I'm sitting up on my bed now, and he looks into my eyes and he says, uh, last night your mother took unwell. I said, yeah. He said, uh, really unwell. Your mother has died. Now, that was really not good. I was 20, I had a 15-year-old sister and an 11-year-old sister. My mother was 46. I was looking forward to going home. And she had a massive heart attack right in our house. The silver cord snapped in an instant, and she was gone. I was 20. And on that day, I moved, as some of you have moved, I transitioned from the notion of death being a cerebral thing to being a visceral thing. Suddenly it became reality. And when it does, as it has for some of you, it changes your perspective on life for always. It does something inside of you that nothing else will ever do. And the Bible mentions it with great clarity, not in order to make us morbid, but in order to make us realistic. Not in order that we would drag ourselves around, but in order that we might recognize the fact that every day we live may be our last day. That this is all the time that we have. That life is very brief, even if I live for an apparently long time, and if God should choose to take me before that time, then this is all the opportunity that I now have. And therefore, what I'm doing with my life, the remembrance that I give to God, my commitment, my consecration, my impact on my peers, my diligence for my studies, all that I am is within the framework of life's brevity and of death's reality. And it is in light of this that the futile cry sounds out in verse 8, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, everything is utterly meaningless. Because after all, death really is dreadful without the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's why our friends are so wretched. No matter how much they may put a smile on their faces, when they put their heads on the pillow at night, they know they are without God and without hope in the whole world. And those friends of ours need Christ. Every day they pass me by, right? We can see it in their eyes. Lonely people filled with care, going who knows where. They know that life's brief. They know that death's real. They've got no answers to their questions. This is a day of good news. We daren't keep our silence. The third principle, 
is not simply that life is brief and death is real, but judgment is absolutely certain. Judgment is certain. Verse 14, For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. The writer of Ecclesiastes, in seeking to ransack the world, would have been happy to sing along with all kinds of uh, guys out of the 60s. Certainly the Moody Blues would have been one of his favorites, I'm sure. And no song more apropos his quest than simply questions. Why do we never get an answer when we're knocking at the door with a thousand different questions about uh, peace and love and war, whatever it is? And then the refrain, I'm looking for someone to change my life. I'm looking for a miracle in my life. That was where he was on this journey. And the streets down which he's gone, you need to backtrack in your book and you will find what he had tried. First of all, he had tried intellectualism or the way of wisdom. You can read of this in chapter 1 and uh, probably verse 13, but I won't know until I get back to chapter 1. He has decided that probably if you're smart, you can make it through life. So he'll endeavor to be as smart as you possibly can be. That's a fairly sensible approach, except that it ends in meaninglessness. Oh yeah, verse 13 of chapter 1, I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. Yet no matter how wise he became, he was frustrated by his inability to reform his character or to transform his circumstances. You see, wisdom is ultimately a dead-end street. Let me quote to you from uh, a 4th century Greek philosopher called Metrodorus of Chios. It should actually be Metrodorus of Chaos, <laughs> but, but it's the Metrodorus of Chios. I'm sure you know him well. But here's one for your, for your mirror in your room. Here, here, is one of the, here is one of the bright statements out of the 4th century. Quote, None of us knows anything, not even when we know or do not know. Nor do we know whether knowing and not knowing exist, nor in general whether there is anything or not. Thank you, Metrodorus. He should be on the gong show, you know. You just bring, just bring him out, say that, dong, goodbye. Have you ever had a friend commit suicide? Were they smart or dumb? They were smart, weren't they? Do you know the high tower of Durham Cathedral in, in, in England? It's closed in uh, finals period in uh, the university there. The reason being that they've had a number of suicides from the high tower. The kids that killed themselves were straight-A students. They weren't the people about to flunk. The guy who's about to flunk, what does he care? I mean, he's made a career of it now for four years. It's like a slow train coming. There's no reason to go up and jump on a tower and fall off to his death. I mean, it can't get any worse than it is. So just let, let the good times roll. But the smart people, the smart people know that having gone up that pathway, there's no answer up there. And Solomon had done the same thing. The way of wisdom was a dead-end street. So he tried the path of pleasure. And he tried wine, women, and song, chapter 2 and uh, verse 3. And verse 8. Oh, he says, I'll just go for it along the lines of uh, seeing what I can get out of life. 
So he says, I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. So he tried embracing folly, verse 12 of chapter 2. Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. Suddenly he realized that when everything produces laughter, nothing's worth laughing about. A kind of Python-esque humorous turn overtakes him. Your lupins are your life, you see. For those of you who know Monty Python. Now, who did Monty Python? Idiots? Well, in one sense, yes. But the guys were Cambridge University, doctor, philosopher, engineer, some of the brightest guys in Great Britain in the 60s embraced the blackness of comedy. It's a dead-end street. And also the tyranny of toil. So he tries intellectualism, useless, hedonism, useless, cynicism, useless, and materialism, also useless. Chapter 4, verse 8, what a picture, what a 20th century picture. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. Some of you got in your mind that this is what you're going to do. You want to become one of these men. You want to become one of these one of these archetypal heroes here. It's a dead-end street. In ten years of pastoral ministry here in America and eight years in Britain before, I've lost count of the number of times I've sat with a dad in the empty room of his son or his daughter, which has got everything in it that a child could possibly hope for, which has the car parked in the garage, which has got everything on the go, but there's nobody in the room. There's no child driving the car. They are long gone. And the father sits and looks at me and says, but I gave them everything. He did, except himself. The tragic picture of the materialist who constantly explains away his absences and the fact that he's not with his wife and the fact that he's not throwing ball with his child because he is the provider. And as thankful as we ought to be for providers, we need to recognize that that dead-end street comes up and grabs us. Now, it is on the, it's in the midst of this that the fact of judgment comes. Young folks, people don't believe in judgment anymore. Even in the church, many people don't believe in judgment. They don't believe there's going to be a payday one day. They don't believe the accounts are going to be settled. But they are. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that comes judgment. That God is going to reckon up the, the accounts that He is going to take what we have done with our lives, that He's going to assess where we stood before Him. And therefore, when we think about the fact that life is brief, that death is real, and judgment is certain, then it drives us to consider, finally, the opportunity of our youthfulness. The opportunity of youth. 
what are your ambitions? What are you going to do? And whatever's crossing the computer screen of your mind right now, does it have to do with the kingdom? Or does it just have to do with you? You see, when I was your age, and I've told you this before, I knew what I was going to do. I knew what car I was going to drive, and I knew who I was going to marry. I neither have the car nor the job, but God graciously gave me the girl. But it was all fleshly. It was all selfish. I, if you like, sent a fax to God. I put on it everything that I was planning and the basic layout of the next five or ten years. And I just sent it to him and asked if he could please sign it at his earliest convenience and return it to me so that I could file it and begin to implement it. I got a fax back which said, I tore up your fax. I've sent you one back. I'd like you to send it and return it to me at your earliest convenience. You know what was written on the paper? Nothing. He simply asked me to sign a blank sheet of paper which he said he'd fill in with his plans and his purposes. That's scary. That's Christianity. That's the opportunity of you. And the decisions that you're making at the moment, right now, concerning career and future, are either going to be decisions which will close down your usefulness for the kingdom, or they will open up your usefulness. Think of it, young people. Here we are, about 300 Sundays away from the year 2000. Life is going by very quickly. Before you know it, you will be here and I'll be the grasshopper. Right now, the opportunities open up before you. I, I, I call upon you to consider the things that you hear given to you week by week by week to go walking in some of these wonderful canyons here. Go walk by yourself with the Lord and tell Him, I am yours, the opportunity of my youth, my gifts, my talents, my future. Lord Jesus, I give them unreservedly to you. The one thing that I was certain I would never be is what I now am. And I could know no greater joy than what I now do in the discovery of God's provision. Death has not yet come to us, but let it rattle its chains and stir us into action. Stir us into action. See, yesterday, my wife sent me this rose. You like it? Can you even see it? This, look at this thing. Call that impressive? She must really love you, Al. No, it was beautiful yesterday. It came in a cellophane thing. It was watered. It had some ice in it or something. It was gorgeous. I thought I locked my keys in the car, but that's a long story I can't go into. Suffice it to say that I locked this little guy in the car for the whole afternoon at Grace Church. And that's what happened to him, or her, or it. 
in less than 24 hours as a piece of junk. You couldn't give this to anybody. You mean so quickly it went from beauty to junk? When are you planning to really give your life to God? You're going to wait till it gets like this? Or in the full bloom of your youthfulness this morning? Tell Him again. For you, everything, Lord Jesus. For if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice that I could ever make for Him could ever be too great. So you got it, Ecclesiastes 12, the brevity of life, the reality of death, the certainty of judgment, and the opportunity of you. The opportunity is yours. Carpe diem. Seize the day. Let's pray. Father, I just look out on all these faces this morning and I'm struck by the awesomeness of the responsibility of even speaking. Lest what is said is less than helpful in the unfolding of your plan. I do pray that these simple facts, no surprises, reinforced in our minds today, may draw us away from our small ambitions and may secure in our lives that commitment, that unreserved desire to do as the disciples did, to pull our boats up on the shore, to leave everything and to follow Jesus. I pray that you will work in all of our lives. Teach us to number our days aright so that we may incline our hearts to wisdom. Bless these students in the remainder of this semester in their relationships with you and with one another, in the challenges of their studies, in their concerns for their families, in the whole spectrum of their lives. May your presence and your power be their protection. Be with us in the hours of this day, in all that we have to do, that we might live always to the praise of your glory and that we may be a help and never a hindrance to one another until the day that we see you and are made like you. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.